Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the apple, we have found ourselves drawn in by glittery temptations. But alas, not everything that glitters is gold. Today we begin our sermon series, Shiny, Pretty, Deadly Things, The Seven Deadly Sins. Join us for the message, Vainglory, The Pride of the Vices. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, ever since Adam and Eve ate the apple, we have found ourselves drawn in by glittery temptations, but not everything that glitters is gold. So later on, we'll be talking about the first of our deadly sins, vain glory, the pride of the vices. And it's the first of our sermon series for Lent, Shiny, pretty, deadly things, the seven deadly sins. This morning's scripture begins with the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 12 and 27 through 28. Listen now for the word of God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. <coughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also, on the outside, look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And now from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for their people of God. Thanks be to God. St. Augustine of Hippo is known for the saying, O Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> And if you know anything about Augustine's life, you know why he prayed this. <laughs> Augustine was born in what is now the northeast corner of the country of Algeria, there on the African Mediterranean coast, in the year 354 AD, to a pagan father and a Christian mother whose name was Monica. He was a very bright student, and his parents made significant sacrifices to further his education. Unfortunately, his father died unexpectedly, but a local landowner offered to pay for <clears throat> Augustine's education. So Monica sent a 17-year-old Augustine to Carthage 
for further instruction. And while there, he entered into a long-term relationship with a young woman whose name has been lost to history. Mm. They lived together for many years, and Augustine fathered a son with her. Mm. Unfortunately, they were legally forbidden to marry because she was of a lower social class than mm. Augustine. Mm-mm-mm. Also, the fact his mother strenuously objected to this relationship. Well, Augustine eventually became a teacher in Carthage, but he wasn't really happy there. So while his mother, Monica, who had since come to Carthage to live with him, so while Monica was praying in a chapel, Augustine, his partner, and their son left for Rome. His mother was not pleased. (laughs) Augustine made his way to Milan, where he was able to secure a position as a teacher and an orator. And eventually his mother caught up with him. And she finally was able to send Augustine's partner packing and arranged a suitable marriage with a fine young woman from the upper class. However, since it would be two years before this young woman was of legal age to marry, Mm. Augustine found himself with neither a partner nor a wife. Therefore, he succumbed to a life of sexual indulgence. Well, during this time, Augustine became, had become a follower of a religion known as Manichaeism, and this upset his mother Monica greatly, a devout Christian, even more than his live-in partner had bothered her. And between her son's heretic religion and his licentious lifestyle, Monica feared for her son's soul. But during this time in Milan, Augustine met and was befriended by Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan. And at first, Augustine was drawn to Ambrose because of his great skills as an orator. He liked to just go and hear Ambrose talk. But as he continued to listen, Augustine slowly found his heart opening up to the gospel message. So he eventually became a Christian, and then he became a priest, including a vow of celibacy. History does not record how his young fiance took this news. Augustine decided to go back to his home in North Africa, but unfortunately Monica died before they could set sail for Italy, or from Italy rather, but at least she was able to see her son baptized as a Christian. Well, Augustine served as a priest in North Africa and really only a few years later, he was made the bishop in the nearby town of Hippo. He was a very prolific writer and his two most famous works that really stand out are number one, The City of God, And number two, the Confessions of St. Augustine. And in his Confessions, Augustine wrote about his life, his conversion to Christianity, his spiritual journeys. And one of the the greatest attributes of this particular work um, in the Confessions is this deep and vulnerable self-awareness that Augustine portrays there in its pages. This was very uh, unlike other ancient literature, much more like modern literature, in fact. And he he wrote quite a bit about his fight against various vices and his pursuit of various virtues, and thus including his famous prayer, O Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) So Augustine also spent much time contemplating on uh, an otherwise rather minor minor youth indiscretion, but he and his friends one day decided to steal some pears out of a neighbor's pear tree. They weren't hungry. They ended up just giving the pears to some pigs. They stole them for the thrill. 
and Augustine stole because of peer pressure. <clears throat> but he really contemplated this act a lot, and as he later wrote, as soon as the words are spoken, let's go and do it, one is ashamed not to be shameless. Mm. For Augustine, everything that happened in his life was food for spiritual reflection. Everything was a story illustrating the virtues and the vices of the Christian life. Well, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and several of us gathered here to receive the ashes. And Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent, which is a 40-day period of spiritual contemplation and renewal that leads up then to Easter morning uh, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lent is often a time when we take the opportunity to reflect on our own lives. It's during Lent that we meditate on our own virtues and vices. Uh, where have I missed the mark? Where have I wandered off the road? And how can I get back on the right path? Well, to aid in this reflection, Christian writers and theologians for 2,000 years now have compiled lists of virtues to emulate and vices to avoid. And the most well-known of these is often or is usually referred to as the seven deadly sins, sometimes just called the seven. And the list, as, as we know it, dates back to the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas. And sometimes his Latin is translated into different English words. But, but his list of seven goes like this. Uh, pride or vainglory, envy, sloth or acedia, greed or avarice, lust, anger or wrath, and gluttony. So why are they called deadly sins? Well, in classic Roman Catholic theology, they're called deadly or mortal sins because these sins result in spiritual death and separation from grace. So the commission of these sins requires confession and absolution before being restored to grace. And the seven mortal sins were also thought to be the sources of all the other sins. And mortal sins were opposed to venial sins, which were less serious and did not result in a separation from grace. But as you would expect that Protestant theologians came along and said, wait a minute, there are not two classes of sins. The wages of all sin is death. And Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in their view, there are no mortal sins which will automatically separate you from grace. As the medieval world transitioned to the modern world, the main approach to ethics and morality changed from one based on virtues as it was in the ancient and medieval times to an ethics that was based on laws and first principles. So that when we do ethics now in the modern world, we usually start by identifying first principles, say such as uh, uh, freedom or justice. And then we enact laws or rules that reflect these principles. And it's not a bad way to do ethics. But when I took introduction to moral theology in seminary, I was introduced to the idea of ethics being based on the development and cultivation of virtues and the elimination of vices. And I was, just, I was just personally drawn to this way of doing ethics because it really gets you away from being so focused on what the rules are. Instead of asking what are the rules, you ask, what kind of person do I wanna be? Or what kind of person am I called to be? For example, if I aspire to be a loving person, then I cultivate the practice of love in my heart. 
if I aspire to be a courageous person, then I'll ask myself, what is the courageous thing to do in this situation? Love and courage are virtues that I want to cultivate in myself. And in contrast, I don't want to be a selfish or cowardly person, so I seek to eliminate those vices in my life. And so then you may want to also ask them, what's the difference between a sin and a vice? Well, sin can be used either one of two ways. A sin either is the commission of a very specific sinful act, or it can refer to the overall condition of the human race, that all of us are kind of caught up in the power of sin from which we need to be saved. A vice, or for that matter, a virtue. A vice or a virtue is more like a habit of mind. They're character traits that one develops over a period of time until they kind of become an internalized part of one's personality. And so think about, think about uh, walking through the woods. Now, the first time you try to walk through the woods, it could be very difficult. It may take a lot of time. There are branches and snares and rocks and roots that you have to avoid. There may be places where snakes and scorpions are hidden, just waiting for a victim to come along. And you run a real risk of getting bit or stung or tripping over a rock or even falling off an unseen ledge. But if you keep walking in this same place in the woods, you will eventually be, start to clear a path. You may even choose to take a machete or some other tool with you to help blaze this trail. And gradually, you clear out all that poison ivy. You clear out that pile of leaves where the snakes may be hidden. And you continue to work on the trail until it becomes easier and easier. And after a while, it becomes more like just a pleasant stroll through the woods. Walking on this trail becomes second nature. And likewise, if you want to be, say, a more patient person, at, hard, at first it's going to be really, really hard. And you'll try to be patient, and you'll make mistakes. And you may have to try and simply act patient, even if you don't really feel patient. Mm -hmm. But if you keep <coughs> at it, after a while, you really will become a more patient person. Being patient will become easier and easier, and you'll eventually be able to incorporate patience into your personality, and it will become part of your character. Doing good will come out of a sense, a sense of flow, as opposed to trying to take a, an active attempt to resist a specific temptation. But to get to this sense of flow, we have to be self-aware of where we need to cultivate virtue which is another set, way of saying we need to be able to be aware of and confess our vices, which is what we're going to be exploring during the season of Lent. And so the seven deadly sins really aren't sins, but a list of common vices. In fact, some have suggested that we use the term capital vices instead. And during the sermon series, I'll, I'll be using both terms, but keep in mind that we're really talking about a list of vices or character traits uh, when we talk about the seven deadly sins. And I also want to emphasize that this series is not about beating ourselves up or just wallowing in guilt or shame. It's about cultivating virtue as a path to spiritual formation and healthier and more fulfilling relationships. Or to use John Wesley's language, it's about the process of sanctification, the process by which the Holy Spirit works in our lives until we become ourselves more holy. It's about going on to perfection in love. Now, in our last sermon series, we talked about some things that the Bible doesn't say. 
In each case, there is some truth to that saying, but the truth was incomplete. And likewise, each vice is actually pointing to something that is a good, it just gets all twisted and distorted. Hmm. Vices are unsuccessful attempts to get what each of us really, truly, deeply wants, to be loved unconditionally and to be fully known. The great writer Frederick Beekner said, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and pride are no more than sad efforts to fill the empty place where love belongs. So this brings us to our first deadly sin, which is often listed as pride. In fact, many would say that pride is the worst sin. The problem is, is in, in modern society, the word pride has taken on a different meaning. Mm -hmm. We often use the word pride in a very positive sense, as opposed to feeling shame or self-loathing, particularly if you're part of a marginalized group. We speak about LGBTQ pride or having ethnic pride in one's heritage. And these meanings of pride are positive and they are very useful definitions of pride. So that's why I decided to name my sermon Vainglory, the pride of the vices. Now vainglory is an archaic term, but I think it gets closer to what is meant when we say that, when we say pride is a vice. And I know that some scholars of medieval theology will quibble with me over these definitions to which I would say to them, this is a sermon, not a dissertation. So vainglory then is the excessive desire for attention, recognition, and approval from others. Now we all, all of us, want to be known and approved and acknowledged by others. But sometimes our natural desire for these things it gets out of hand, and it comes between our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with God. Commissioning is the step that you take right before ordination. And you have to wait a minimum of two years after commissioning before you get ordained. But prior to being commissioned, each candidate must undergo a comprehensive psychological examination. You will be relieved to know I have no diagnosable mental illnesses. <laughs> but the psych eval is an opportunity for each candidate to learn more about themselves. So as I was sitting with the psychologist going over my profile, he said that according to my test results, I'm the kind of person who has a great desire to be seen and perceived as competent. I replied that it was less that I wanted to be seen as competent, but rather that I have a great desire to actually be competent. But then I want credit for it. <laughs> well, at that point, he chuckled. He told me not to worry too much about it because almost all the profiles of prospective pastors who come in for this evaluation say the same thing. They want desperately to be seen as competent. It's a very common trait of clergy. Vainglory can be a real temptation for pastors, as well as performing artists and, and many, many others. Vainglory is different from an honest attempt to do one's best or to strive for excellence. Vainglory is about the applause, the attention, the image. And I think it is a vice that is becoming more and more common in our age of social media. Yeah. People crave celebrity. Mm -hmm. 
And people, people are often given serious career advice that tells them that they must cultivate and sell their personal brand. Mm -hmm. This carefully curated image that you want to project in the workplace. In fact, Kim and I were talking just last Sunday about how college athletes are now allowed to make money off of their personal image and brand and still be eligible for college athletics. And of course, some athletes are gonna be much better at this than others. And stemming from vainglory, you also get the vices of hypocrisy or boastfulness or what is some kind, sometimes called the lure of novelty. That is, you have to wear the latest fashion, own the latest device, uh, know the latest gossip. Vainglory can also lead to arrogance and the belief that you have no need for God or no need for others. It is the antithesis, or, or rather we see the antithesis of vainglory in one of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through these seven deadly sins, we'll be pairing each one with one of Jesus' Beatitudes. And in this case, we come to the Beatitude that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there is a healthy hum humility that should not be confused with having low self-worth. To be poor in spirit means that you are teachable. You realize you don't have all the answers and that you have something to learn from everyone. No matter who I'm talking to, there is something that this person knows about that would be good for me to learn. They have some sort of skill or ability that I lack and that they have an abundance. So I try to remember that every person is capable of being my teacher. And another way to say blessed are the poor in spirit is to say blessed are those who realize that they are spiritually in need. And I really like the way uh, Eugene Peterson translates this beatitude in his translation of the Bible known as the message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. I like that. And with more of God, maybe we can begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Hmm. Now, one virtue that can stand up to vainglory is the virtue of magnanimity. Magnanimity is a deep joy that comes from doing the right thing or achieving some great accomplishment in order to please God and for which other people may never even be aware. Magnanimous people are also willing to share credit with others. And C.S. Lewis had a great way of saying this because he also taught that we're not supposed to, to feel like we're some sort of worm. He said a magnanimous person takes as much joy and pleasure from the accomplishments of others as one does, does from one's own accomplishments. Because in each case, you are in awe and give thanks for the gifts and talents that God has given both to yourself and to others. It's also to acknowledge that whatever a, ta a talent or ability that we may have, ultimately its source is God. And even if we've worked very hard for our accomplishments, there were always others out there who are willing to teach us or to give us a helping hand. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. In the end, vainglory prevents us from getting what 
our true heart's desire is, again, to be fully known and unconditionally loved. But vainglory can be tamed and magnanimity increased through prayer and spiritual disciplines, particularly the disciplines of silence, simplicity, and solitude. We have to just get away sometimes, get away from the TV, get away from the iTunes blaring without our phones or tablets to be really alone and to soak in that silence. It's often only when we are alone and quiet that we can hear that still small voice of the Holy Spirit whispering in our ears. Mm. Now before we can hear the voice of God, we may need to silence the other types of voices that can run through our heads. And some of you may be familiar with the writer Anne Lamott. She's a fantastic writer. But a different writer was describing Anne Lamott's writing discipline. Living with excessive desires for the approval of others can be crippling. Anne Lamott recounts the ritual with which she begins her writing. She imagines all the voices in her head, both positive and negative, constantly reciting their high expectations and their devastating criticism of her writing as little mice. She drops them one by one by their tails in a big glass jar and then screws the lid on tight. And she can see the mice pawing and, and, and um, squeaking away furiously, but she cannot hear them. And then she sets the jar off to one side. And only when the voices are stilled and moved out of sight does she have then the freedom to focus on hearing the characters that she is writing about. What would it be like for each one of us to work with voices silenced for that audience of one? Mm. That is our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. St. Augustine of Hippo wrote, what I needed most was to love and to be loved, eager to be caught. And happily I wrapped these painful bonds around me and sure enough, I would be lashed with red-hot pokers of jealousy by suspicions and fears, by bursts of anger and quarrels. Augustine knew about the vices, the mortal sins, and he knew they were a poor substitute for his true heart's desire to be known and to be loved and to love others in return. So as we journey this Lent through the valley of the vices, let us keep our eyes on the prize the secure knowledge that comes from realizing that we are beloved children of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Now receive this benediction. Though the night is dark, the light of the world goes before you, guiding your steps and illuminating the way forward. Go then in peace, ready to serve the one who has loved you from the very beginning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we continue our sermon series, Shiny, Pretty, Deadly Things, The Seven Deadly Sins, with a look at Envy, the Green-Eyed Monster. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org our Facebook page, our YouTube channel and our podcast Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure 
If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.